The words liberal and conservative are much heard on this program. Indeed, they were heard just last night. Uh, and uh, we, uh, wanna, we assume that we know how to define liberal and how to define conservative. You define them basically by what they presently point to and what uh, particular issues liberals and conservatives differ upon. But there is something intrinsically liberal and something intrinsically conservative, perhaps. We're going to be talking about that tonight with Alfred S. Regnery, as well as examining the history of the rise of conservatism in this country, particularly in the post-war years. Alfred Regnery, and you probably recognize the name uh, because it is the same as the publishing firm that he ran for many years, Regnery, uh, a firm founded by his father. Uh, and uh, Alfred Regnery these days is no longer the publisher, but he's on the board of the Regnery uh, publishing house. And he is as well the publisher of the American Spectator, one of the leading uh, essentially conservative journals in the country. And he's the author of a new book, Upstream, The Ascendance of American Conservatism. Was it once in the descendants rather than the ascendance? Well, I think it was probably flat rather than... It, of yeah. course, it's always had its ups and its downs. But um, I think if you look at it over the long term, it has been an ascent um, upward with, as I say, some, some kinks in the road. One remembers the, uh, the song in Gilbert and Sullivan's Eolanthe, where the sergeant standing before the Houses of Parliament sings, I often think it comical, fa-la-la, that every boy and every girl that's born into this world alive is either a little liberal or else a little conservative, <laughs> fa-la-la, arguing there's something intrinsic about liberalism versus conservatism. Do you think that's true? Well, I guess there probably is, and it probably goes back a long time. I mean, it's um, using the terms liberal and conservative in simply as we think of them today in electoral politics restricts them too much. They're, they are much broader than that. It's um, probably in both cases almost a way of life, a way of thinking about the world, a way of um, thinking about yourself. And um, so they, I, there, there, are, there really are no good definitions for, certainly for the conservative word, for mm -hmm. liberal it might be somewhat easier to define, but that's because there are so many aspects to it. and so many different ways of thinking about it that some people have um, certain things that they they concentrate on and they're defined their their conservatism is defined by those I suppose. well let's get to the phenomenological base of conservatism its core meaning its core essence as for example perhaps elaborated by shall we choose Edmund Burke who's generally considered the sort of the source of modern conservatism and well, Burke was was the was one of the sources of maybe the source of modern, particularly traditionalist conservatism, mm -hmm. and for him it was it was a belief in in a supreme being. It was uh, maintaining the values of Western civilization that had been established over a long period of time of of Christendom, if you will, um, and the things that those stood for. Um, it meant, well, of course, it came to mean limited government, and that was something that Burke mm -hmm. talked about as well, and protecting the individual individual rights and, and liberties against the um, the forces of, of government, and a good many other things as well. You say that's what conservatism meant to Burke. Interestingly, the definition of conservatism given by Russell Kirk, in a way, the man who re-aroused conservatism in this country, runs in much the same. It does. Ticks off those same points. It does, and Kirk was was certainly a uh, a Burkean, and he was one of the ones who resurrected him. Yeah, let's talk about him just a bit. There are a number of interesting characters in the book who are important contributors, either as political activists or as activists 
intellectuals who really did the thinking and impressed a lot of people. One of them, of course, not as well known as, say, Russell Kirk or Edmund Burke, was once a professor at the University of Chicago. I don't mean Milton Friedman, though he's very important also, but I do mean Richard Weaver. Richard Weaver, Weaver. yeah. yeah. Let's talk about Kirk and Weaver and people okay, like that. Okay, well, Kirk was, was a very interesting fellow. He was... Um, he wrote a book called The Conservative Mind, which my father published in 1954, I think it was. Um, he was an instructor at Michigan State at the time, had studied at St. Andrews in Scotland, uh, was an extremely well-educated man, and um, he, was, he certainly had that intrinsic conservatism. His father was a railroad engineer in Michigan, and um, I think he was probably the first one in the family in generations who had studied at the university. Um, but. He wrote this book um, called The Conservative Mind, which was really a uh, collection isn't really the right word, but it, it, it was a discussion of the history of conservatism, of, the, of conservative thought. And it, went, it really went back for generations, for centuries, um, recounted particularly the British philosophers and what they had to say about conservatism. And he set forth a number of points that... Um, he thought conservatism was, and the effect of the book was that um, you have to understand what was going on at the time. There, in 1954, 53, there were not very many conservatives. Um, the country was really still drifting to the left after the Roosevelt administration politically, um, and there were there weren't any good definitions. Conservatives had trouble defining who they were, and this book of Kirk's came along. Um, which it, it effectively um, gave conservatives a roadmap, an intellectual roadmap of where they were and where they came from. And immediately, it brought enormous amount of respectability to um, intellectual conservatism because it was so well done, and he touched on every topic, um, that even people that had no time for conservatism read this book and said, um, this puts the whole conservative movement on a completely different plane. Did that book and its consequences and the waves that it generated affect actually our politics? Did it reach the Republican Party and produce something of the reorganization of oh, clearly. and recommitment yeah. to conservatism among Republicans? It clearly did. I mean, for example, Kirk was involved in the Goldwater campaign in 1964. Uh -huh. He was a, a very studious intellectual, but nevertheless, he understood practical politics, and he understood that you could establish these conservative ideas intellectually, but um, if you were actually going to get anywhere with it, it couldn't just be an academic exercise. It really had to be turned into practical politics as well. So he was he was very good at that. Speaking of Goldwater, uh, let us listen to his voice. This from the actual um, defense of liberty. Well, this from his acceptance speech at the Republican convention in which he gets off those great lines, I think written by Harry Jeffa, if I remember. I think that's correct. Here it is. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. That moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. A short but very appropriate clip. His opponent uh, and the representative of the other meaning or the other style in the Republican Party was, of course, uh, uh, Nelson Rockefeller. Nelson Rockefeller, that's right. Who was vying for the presidential well, nomination. Well, and he had in 1960 as well against Nixon, and he represented the... Um, the liberal wing of the Republican Party. They were known as Rockefeller Republicans, and Goldwater, of course, represented the conservative wing. And it was a very hard-fought battle in primaries. Goldwater won 
enough of them to get nominated. Um, and that really, it, it, it had a huge effect on American politics. Of course, Goldwater was beaten by a colossal landslide by Linda Johnson um, in November, but the repercussions from that election um, are still felt in American politics. I can just tick off three or four of them. Um, for example, and I think it's an interesting comparison with what goes on today, Goldwater actually had as many as three and a half to four million volunteers working in the campaign. Including that Rodham girl from <laughs> That's right. the She's Chicago true, suburbs. Right. But there, this, there had never been anything like this in politics before. And these were mostly people, of course, who had no involvement in politics mm -hmm. whatsoever. He had about a million contributors. Um, as compared, in 1960, Nixon had had about 40,000 contributors. Um, and these were, these were small $5, $10 contributors. Um, the effect of that was really the change the way politics was financed. Um, until then, with the, the largely wealthy people, bankers and so on, financing um, the, the, the Republican Party in a way, and the, the Democrats were mostly financed by labor unions and others, they called the shots. Um, as you had these thousands, hundreds of thousands of smaller contributors, um, the grassroots, in other words, who were, who were paying for things, they started calling the shots. So that made a huge difference. Also, Goldwater was the first Westerner who was nominated in the Republican Party, and it really started the trend of Republic, the center of Republicanism from the North and the East, which was, of course, Rockefeller, to the South and the West which Goldwater represented. And of course, that's still true. Yet he was painted, as, successfully painted, as an extremist and as really a bit off his rocker uh, by the Democrats. And he lost very, very significantly. I think he carried only one state, Vermont. Is that right? No, no. Uh, Goldwater carried um, Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, South Carolina, and I think Louisiana. Who was it carried only Vermont? That was uh, McGovern, I think. Oh, well, on the other side right, of, the, right, of the picture, right. to be sure. Right. But I do remember from that campaign that um, the Republican Party had the slogan of Vod Goldwater, in your heart you know he's right, to which the Democratic repost was, in your heart you know he's nuts. That's right. Um, well, they, yeah, it, it actually, another thing that started was, was negative campaigning, because Johnson yeah. ran the most negative campaign that had happened we had the famous until that time. Uh, child picking the daisy. Exactly. Ending in the nuclear right. explosion. A famous, famous ad. That was one of yeah. the first really negative ads. Republicans learned if they want to win elections, they have to run negative campaigns. Mm -hmm. um, and I cover all of that in my book. It's, it's, outlined, it's outlined carefully yeah. in there. Uh, yet, what Goldwater represented somehow made a real difference in, in American public life, I would suppose. We think of Reagan as the central figure, the iconic figure in the rise and the success of American conservatism through the vehicle of the Republican Party. But the Goldwater movement begins a real shift. Well, it did. Until Goldwater, the conservative movement was an intellectual exercise. It was academic. It was writers and, and speakers, philosophers, and so on. With Goldwater, it became a national political movement. And um, as I said, Goldwater ran, a, ran a, a very interesting campaign. He lost by a huge amount, but nevertheless, he did run a national com campaign, and he showed that you could actually nominate a conservative to one of the major parties. Um, so and, uh, really, with, with Goldwater, the conservative movement becomes a political entity, a, a political exercise. And then with Reagan, um, who actually got his first introduction in the Goldwater campaign to American politics, when Reagan is elected in 1980, 16 years later, the conservative movement showed that it could actually govern. It could elect somebody who could successfully 
um, be president. And speaking of Reagan, I can't resist working this in right now since you've mentioned it. Here's an excerpt from Reagan's speech uh, supporting and urging the country to vote for Goldwater. This, I think, only a night or two before the election. That's right, it was. The election of 1964. Those who would trade our freedom for the soup kitchen of the welfare state have told us they have a utopian solution of peace without victory. They call their policy accommodation. And they say if we'll only avoid any direct confrontation with the enemy, he'll forget his evil ways and learn to love us. All who oppose them are indicted as warmongers. They say we offer simple answers to complex problems. Well, perhaps there is a simple answer. Not an easy answer, but simple. If you and I have the courage to tell our elected officials that we want our national policy based on what we know in our hearts is morally right, we cannot buy our security our freedom from the threat of the bomb by committing an immorality so great as saying to a billion human beings now enslaved behind the Iron Curtain, give up your dreams of freedom because to save our own skins, we're willing to make a deal with your slave masters. Alexander Hamilton said a nation which can prefer disgrace to danger is prepared for a master and deserves one. And of course, that reminds us of the force uh, of Reagan's presentation and uh, his entry into American public life shortly thereafter. And in 66, I think, he runs for governor of He did. California. He ran for governor two years later. Actually, let me just tell you one thing I discovered um, when in writing the book, which I included in it, that I thought was very interesting, and that was that in December of 1964, a month after the, the Goldwater campaign was over, Reagan wrote an article in National Review, and he talked about the Goldwater campaign, and he said, in essence, that the... Um, the, the message was fine. He said there was nothing wrong with Goldwater's message. He said that old Uncle Cornpone, as they called Lyndon Johnson, got the better of him. But he said it, the way Goldwater campaigned is not the way to campaign for oh. political office. And he outlined really what you needed to do. And for example, he said you have to engage the, the voter. You, when you're making a speech, you can't talk about the national debt because the average voter just doesn't understand what that means. But if you can talk about it in terms of how it's going to raise his taxes, how it's going to affect his livelihood, it does make a difference. In 1966, Reagan runs for governor of California. Um, and, of course, George Murphy, the song and dance man, had run in 64 and won in California um, by like, several hundred thousand one, votes. And then won a position in the Senate. And for the Senate, yeah. right. He, but he ran statewide in California. Yeah. He won by a couple hundred thousand votes, where Goldwater lost by a million votes. So Reagan looks at this and he says, well, if George can do it, I can do it. Mm -hmm. And so he, when he ran for governor, he actually won in California by about the same number of votes, a million, that Goldwater had lost by. And that was because he campaigned with what you just heard. I mean, Reagan, I, I, re I remember listening to that speech that you just, just played in, in 1964. I was in college. And I think I had the same reaction that just about everybody else did. Wow, this is the guy we ought to be running for president rather than Barry mm -hmm. Goldwater. Another interesting uh, uh, thing uh, available through that brief excerpt is a reminder that one of the main themes of the revived conservatism that took off in those days uh, was anti-communism. That's right, um, which was, the, in a way, the glue that held the conservative movement together for many years. Yeah. Um, and anti-communism, the very interesting history of anti-communism, again, um, much of which I didn't realize until I wrote the book, but... Um, you go back way before World War II, there was a very active anti-communist movement in the labor unions and the Catholic Church. Um, and the, the American communists would infiltrate 
one organization or part of life or another and an anti communist movement would spring up within that organization or set of organizations or whatever it was but of course then it was quite latent during world war two is that as the soviet union was our ally pretty quickly after world war two the anti communist movement arose again and a couple of things that were the greatest stimulus were of course the rosenberg case the his case where these people were obviously infiltrating the government for to to steal secrets and give them the soviet union but again ronald reagan appears in nineteen forty seven when he testified before the house committee on american activities as a representative of hollywood and he was probably the foremost anti-communist in hollywood but now from the left in those days and even in memory to in these days comes uh... come the accusations of mccarthyism and the accusation that the right wing was then and still is now rather fanatic in its rejection of of the needs of surging uh, humanity elsewhere in the world, uh, lusting not merely to be free, but rather to have uh, their physical condition altered for the better. And uh, in general, the accusation from the left is that the right wing, whether as, exa- as exemplified by the Republican Party or whether just as generally available in uh, insistent American conservatism at its most, quote, extreme, that the right wing is somehow lacking in feeling for human beings, lacking in trust for human beings, too suspicious of the rest of the world, too hostile towards the rest of the world. In those days, too hostile towards the Soviet Union, now too hostile in an unreflective way towards a kind of an imagined specter which they call Islamofascism. Well, that's true, and of course that's where the extremism um, accusation against Goldwater arose, which was probably one of the things that defeated him, maybe maybe more than anything Mm -hmm. else, because the the left was able to convince the, the voting public that Goldwater, in fact, was a fanatic. They often quoted that great, that great, uh, I'm sure inten- intentionally funny line of his, let's lob one, the one being a nuclear bomb, mm-hmm. into the men's room with the Kremlin. Right. That's true, and that was, that was of course, a, a joke. But, but you're right, um, Milt, in terms of, of the way the, um, the left always painted the, the conservatives um, as being extremists. In fact, before, before and during World War II, they, they had what they called the brown smear, and what that meant was that they were the, that since the 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 war of World War II was a fight against fascism, anybody who was um, not fighting against fascism was a fascist. And they so even the people that were anti-communists were were accused of being fascists. And so even some very very prominent Americans, people like William Randolph Hearst, for example, were accused of that for because of the fact that they questioned um, the the. the proximity that we had with the Soviet Union during World War II. Lots of people have made a transition from the comparative left to the comparative right, if one wants to dimensionalize political attitude that way. I confess to you that I've made that transition. When I voted for Lyndon Johnson, that was one of my first elections in which I could vote. I voted for Lyndon Johnson in that election. More than that, I was a kid assistant professor at Dartmouth at the time. and. Uh, I uh, I did some electioneering. I ran a portion of the campaign in the second district of New Hampshire for Johnson's reelection in '64. Uh, Rockefeller came to town. He was in fact an alumnus of Dartmouth College, and so he was often in town anyway. I think, but he came to town, and I met with him. And he was this was before uh, the convention, uh, and he was uh, certainly representing his views. Uh, in a more liberal way than 
Goldwater would have represented his views, but I was quite put off by the Rockefeller life. Um, what changed me, I don't know. I often ponder it, and I didn't change within a year or two after that. I didn't fully begin to shift in the direction of putting aside all of my old essential liberal platitudes, which went with the territory that I occupied, a Jewish intellectual from New York. Um, but it began to change for me, I think, during the early years of the Clinton administration. Uh, I was just put off by almost everything about what they were doing and, uh, and the reckless way in which they were doing it. And uh, once you begin to make a shift, it goes very rapidly, I think. Well, you weren't alone. I mean, there were no. many others. Of course, in a more dramatic way, going back to the anti-communists, um, the, many of the of the people that were the leaders of the anti-communist movement were former communists themselves. To be sure. Um, many Chambers, of the uh, Frank Meyer. I mean, there's a whole those long are some list of, the of those are some of the leading writers at the National Review. Exactly, actually, and they were as they, Buckley founded it, and many others as well. Who, um, of course, they knew exactly what it was all about, and as they saw, really what it meant. I think they many of them joined in in um, with good intentions of of trying to help humanity and so on. But um, as as they saw what they actually were about, I think many of them changed, but in many cases it was a philosophical thing, and then many people like yourself have migrated from the left to the right. I don't know if it works the other way as well or not. I mean, the joke, of course, is I can that think I, of one. Uh, what's his name? Uh, he's, uh, uh, he used to write for, uh, was, did he write for the American Spectator, I believe? He did the Troopergate stories. What's his oh, name? Oh, that was David Brock. And he's gone from right, that's true. the left to the right. Uh, Gary Wills is another one, I guess, who's gone from the right to yes. the left to some extent. There there probably are a few others, but I think in terms of numbers, I don't know for sure, but I would guess there have been more that have gone left to right than I'm sure right that's to left. True. I'm sure that's true. What, what it's uh, Irving Crystal's line that a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged by reality. Mugged on the way to reality, <laughs> is, I think. <laughs> is that what it yeah. was? Uh, we are going to pause right now in just a moment for an update on the news, a few quick commercials, and then back. Uh, one thing that needs clarifying, and it's in your book early on, uh, you differentiate three basic types of conservatism that are operative in American life these mm -hmm. days. And one of them is the anti-communist right. variety, though I guess maybe that's fading a bit. Let's talk about all of that, okay. how it sections out okay. in the, uh, the spectrum of conservatisms in America, including the difference between conservatism and neoconservatism, which needs to be discussed with Alfred S. Regnery as we continue to draw from his new book, Upstream, The Ascendance of American Conservatism. But first, to the newsroom and Veronica Carter. And we return to Alfred S. Regnery who for many years ran the firm of the same name. Uh, and Regnery was, and I guess still remains, sort of the leading publishing house for essentially conservative work. It has been really since 1947 when it started. Yeah. And uh, you sold out, not sold out, but sold to uh, some others a few years ago that you still are on the board. Uh, and you are the publisher of The American Spectator, which is a lot of fun as a magazine, as well as being uh, a strong, a staunch conservative vehicle. We try to keep it that way. And Emmett Terrell set the tone a long time ago. He was the original editor, publisher, inventor of it all. And he still started there. in 1968 at Indiana University yeah. as a student publication to fight the left, and it's still going. It's much different form now, but it still has the same pugnacity, good, good nature, and humor to it that it yeah. always did. Uh, I was asking you to elaborate upon the distinctions you draw in the book about the different types of conservatism. You, you discriminate three basic forms. I do, at the beginning. Um, the economic conservatives, libertarians, they called themselves classical liberals, and those were initially people who were concerned that the 
um, the, the world was drifting to the left, that socialism was becoming the, the norm, um, and Friedrich, von, uh, Friedrich Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, Milton Friedman came along pretty soon, and then the University of Chicago Economics Department and a good many others. And what they said was, in essence, free markets, um, individual liberty are essential. If you're going to have political freedom, you have to have economic freedom, and of course much more beyond that. Um, the second branch were the traditionalists, and those were the people who really wanted to maintain the standards um, of Western civilization, of um, the Constitution, um, and that Russell Kirk, Richard Weaver, as we mentioned earlier, were, were those people. The third were the anti-communists, and um, they were, of course, concerned about the drift to the left um, in the rest of the world, um, headed by the Soviet Union, and uh, were pugnacious, I guess, if you will, um, in terms of, of foreign policy and maintaining a strong um, barrier against communism. It's important to remember, though, that these people weren't simply isolated in individual camps. Um, they overlapped. Um, I think of them as concentric circles, and they move in and out, I guess, depending on what the issue is. And initially, they were further separate in the, in the early 50s um, until really National Review was started. That was the place that brought them together um, in 1955. Again, the Goldwater campaign had a lot to do with it to bring them into, they, to make, make them understand that they all really had a common interest, which was fighting the left, and that they would, um, they could form a, a coalition together and form a movement. It's time to bring into the picture, uh, then a very young man in those years, just out of Yale, William Buckley, whom you met when you were what, eight years old? I was about eight years old, and my father published God and Man at Yale, his first book in 1951. Um, he was just out of Yale, I think he was 23 or 24 when the book was published. Um, and he would uh, he would come to our house in suburban Chicago um, rather often and was a favorite guest of my brothers and sisters and I and um, but he was he was unique of course he died two weeks ago um, at 82 uh, he probably contributed more to the conservative movement than I think anybody else with the possible exception of Ronald Reagan but um, it, of course he was not a, a political figure Ronald Reagan was and in fact they were very good friends and they corresponded um, a great deal. And you'd, have, and, and you'd have to say he helped pave the way, was one oh, of the main absolutely. people who uh, made the course, opened the, the road for Reagan. Well, he did. He opened the road for, for the whole conservative movement in many ways. When he published Guide and Man at Yale, the book was a sensation. It um, questioned what Yale was teaching, um, which was really questioning the entire academic community. People were incensed that somebody would say something like this. The attacks from the left were overwhelming. Um, Buckley was as good um, then as he was in his later life. He was quick, and he was any 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 barb they threw at him, he could pick it up and throw it back, and it was even worse. I learned from your book that Yale itself, the Yale Corporation, brought in uh, as the killer to do the killer review none other than McGeorge Bundy. He did. McGeorge Bundy wrote a, a review in the Atlantic, um, which became the official response of Yale. Yeah. Among other things, he, he called Buckley a twisted young man, and he said that his use of facts was dishonest, and it was a, just, you know, it was vituperative. It was an incredible review. I mean, I don't think you'd get away with writing something like that today. And of course, Buckley loved it, because for one thing, it sold a lot of books, and it put him on the map, and it gave him ammunition to fight back, and he did very effectively. What did he do with the National Review in those first years? What was the significance of what the National Review uh, put before the country? Well, for the first time, it offered every other week a a compilation of articles on things that people were thinking about. 
probably the most important thing he did initially was to bring together a group of eight or ten people who um, in many cases didn't really have exactly the same views on things and the same interests but they were the outstanding people in the country. He brought them together in his magazine and ed as editors so that when the magazine came along um, people across the country had really first-class writing by first-class thinkers um, which gave them the ammunition they needed to fight back. And in so many cases, those people that began reading the magazine thought they were alone. Yeah. They were out in the in the Midwest or in the South or wherever they might have been, and um, few other people around them thought the way they did. And all of a sudden, here comes this magazine that mm -hmm. outlines it all and gives it to them. And they so he dispelled pluralistic ignorance. That's what the social psychologists call it when you think you're alone, when in fact lots of other people have the same thoughts, but they don't disclose them to you because they think they're alone. <laughs> and this dispelled the pluralistic ignorance of the nascent conservative community. Well, that's probably right. He did that, I guess. I'm not a sociologist, but um, it sounds good to me. But Buckley also brought a a, a degree of class to the whole mm -hmm. thing. I mean, he was he was he had a great sense of humor. He, of course, had used big words, but he used them correctly. Um, he had a wonderful way of speaking. He was well-educated, um, came from an elite family, and that certainly didn't hurt any. Um, and had graduated, he had been, graduated from Yale as the editor of the Yale Daily News, had been in Skull and Bones, the most prestigious um, senior organization at Yale. So he really did have, um, he had a great deal of credibility, and he brought that, I mean, he could have done anything, but instead he brought it to this fledgling movement, which really was fledgling in 1955, and put all of his resources into it, and he never stopped until the day he died. We now have to get on a tighter commercial schedule, so I'm pausing in just a moment. You don't mind if we do some obeisance towards capitalism. Yeah. And we'll do that. And then when we come back, I would love to get some your view on what exactly neoconservatism was as it arose and was first labeled and what it is now and what the argument is between the neoconservatives and the so-called paleoconservatives. We return to further conversation on these matters with Alfred Regnery after these words. And we return to Alfred S. Regnery, drawing from, though we can hardly do full justice to, the rich content and the wonderful stories and the dexterous uh, social political analysis that one finds in his new book, Upstream, The Ascendance of American Conservatism, which is, by the way, just published by whom? Uh, Threshold Editions of Simon & Schuster. That's the Simon & Schuster imprint. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, posing the question a moment ago about neoconservatism, which arises... Uh, not quite sure when and who first labels it neoconservatism, but some of the leading people are Irving Kristol, Norman Podhoretz, um, and various others. I Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Moynihan one of the early ones. Yes. Daniel Bell, mm -hmm. um, several others. They first um, arose in the middle 60s, I guess, and these were uh, mostly professors. Um, they were mostly interested in sociology. Um, and initially, their great concern was that the programs of the Great Society, Lyndon Johnson's welfare programs and so on, were doing more harm than good. They were counterproductive. Um, but as opposed to the conservatives... The measure of that was the increase in black illegitimacy. That was one of the things. And that was Moynihan's book the, uh, about the black exactly. family, um, which was written in 65 or 66. When he was on the staff at Nixon's White House. That's right. Um, but they... Um, the conservatives would have wanted to end those programs. The neocons wanted to fix them. 
that was the great difference. So they weren't concerned about limited government. They weren't concerned about lowering taxes, but they were there. They did argue about some of the same things that conservatives were. The first, really, the first time that they got a public hearing from a conservative was when Bill Buckley ran for mayor of New York in 1965, because he was really going after the um, the whole patholo social pathology of New York City and. The arguments that, that he found in these, what were then probably not called neoconservatives, but which became such, um, were, were very useful to him in terms of, the, um, in, in terms of his, his campaign. Anyway, um, they evolved into, uh, eventually, into foreign, uh, being concerned about foreign policy. They were largely anti-communists. And um, as, the, as we went through the Carter administration in the, in the late 70s, the um, the neoconservatives became distressed that we were too accommodating to the Soviet Union. Eventually, most of them, or many of them anyway, um, became Republicans and supported Ronald Reagan, and um, many of them actually went into his administration um, forming the backbone of his foreign policy. They also um, tended to back, I guess they even originally organized, uh, something called the Committee on the Present Danger. That's right, and that was, was that was the catalyst really for much of this foreign policy debate. Um, the present danger being the Soviet Union. Exactly, they right. felt right. Yes, yeah. and Gene Kirkpatrick was one of the principal people yes, that indeed. was there. Yeah. Um, uh, there, uh, the um, the Rostow brothers who had been in the Johnson administration, a uh, whole long list of other Democrats. But then there were people like Don Rumsfeld. Ronald Reagan was in the Committee for Public the, the Present Danger as well. So. Um, it was it was a bipartisan group, and their their principal concern was Soviet Union. Now these days we hear, and it's a standard line which you get from the the left when the left is critical of the Iraq War, as surely it is, uh, that uh, this was that the, that that was a bill of goods, the Iraq War, sold to uh, Bush by the neoconservatives and certain people on positioned in a certain way uh, in the ranks of the far left, also whisper or declare outright that essentially this was a Jewish undertaking, that the neoconservatives are basically Jewish and most, and they run the roster of names of those who supposedly had influence upon Bush, and they choose uh, essentially Jewish names to make the point that this was really done to advantage Israel. Well, that's true. And um, in fact, the, 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 what, what are known as the neoconservatives now um, really have very little relation to the neoconservatives of the, the ones I was just talking about, of the 60s and the 70s. Primarily now, neoconservatives are interventionists in foreign policy. They believe that the United States um, <clears throat> has such a, a um, strong uh, position in the world and, and that its, its policies are so good that we should really try to extend those to the rest of the world. And if we need to intervene in order to, um, to stop something that we find to be particularly um, evil, then we should do that. And, um, in fact, the, neo the neoconservatives did have a good deal to do with designing the Iraq war. Now, obviously, they weren't making the decisions. The decisions were being made by the president and the secretary of state and the secretary of defense and the national security advisor and others. But um, None they, of whom are Jewish, as far as I know. I think that's probably true. And, in fact, a good many of the neoconservatives are Jewish, but there are plenty of them that aren't as yeah. well. Um, you know the book by my sometime colleague from the University of Chicago, Mearsheimer. Mm -hmm. and his friend Walt from Harvard, right. uh, in which they are arguing essentially that um, that the whole government leans decidedly in the direction of overindulging Israel, and that's because of the strength of the Jewish, uh, American Jewish, Israeli, pro-Israeli lobby. Right. Um, and that has become 
one of the major themes on the left as against the right. You know, I have not read that book, and I, I have read reviews of it and read about it, and I know about as much as you just mentioned. And mm -hmm. um, I don't think it really is a conservative liberal argument. Um, uh, it's it's it, and in terms of writing this book, it's not something I cover. Well, there's a sector of the left, which far left, which in fact somehow comes almost closes the circle and adopts, if not overtly, at least in a sinuous, whispery way, adopts the anti-Semitism of what was once the extreme and fanatic right. Well, in fact, interestingly, um, back in the in the 60s and the 70s, when the original neoconservatives arose, um, one of the reasons they were so distressed with the left was because of the anti-Semitism. Yeah. And uh, on the part of the left and, and the um, the the relationship that they had with various uh, Arab groups, terrorist Arab groups at that time, and so on. So that was certainly a factor even back then. Now we are engaged in a great public debate, uh, having to do with essentially liberalism versus conservatism. That is, and all that is brought on by the impending presidential election. I wonder, uh, and I ask you, looking forward to your answer after three minutes. We've got to pause again for some commercials. Uh, I would love to hear what you've got to say about the way in which conservative themes of the legitimate variety that you uh, track in this book and that you think were in the ascendant or are still in the ascendant, the way in which they're being handled in the present public debate, indeed in the direct contest between uh, Republican and Democrat and the kind of contest that will emerge after the primaries are finished and after we know who the Democratic opponent is. We return directly to Alfred Regnery after we pause for this. And we return to Alfred Regnery for a very brief passage before we stop at 10 o'clock for the uh, full newscast. But uh, let's come directly to the, this political moment. The title of your book is Upstream, the subtitle, The Ascendance of American Conservatism. Is it in the ascendant when lots of people are suggesting the next election goes to the Democrats, whether it's uh, he or her? Well, it goes in cycles to some extent. The the ascendance is the is the period of time the book covers, which is from the after World War II mm -hmm. to the present, and there certainly has been a huge ascendance in that period of time. Um, what we're what we're facing now is you look at the the Republican um, candidates who are running against each other. All tried to be Ronald Reagan. They all tried to convince the um, the voters that they were more conservative than the other. Not not necessarily that they were, but they tried to tr tried to tell us that they were. Um, and I think as you, on, on the other side, certainly on the Democratic side, you've got uh, one very left-wing candidate in Obama and one um, very opportunistic candidate in Hillary Clinton who will be as left-wing as she needs to be to get, and was in fact in the early primaries, is now mm -hmm. moving toward the center. When that comes to um, the general election, um, McCain, who is pretty conservative in many ways, but is has some uh, some areas where he's really irritated conservatives and where he isn't particularly conservative, but I think you're going to have a pretty classic co confrontation between right and left, and I think there will be a great many people weighing in to try to show the voters that the Democrats are more left and the Republicans are more right. You are seriously conservative, and you even have your doubts about McCain, which you've just hinted at at the moment, and you express them more fully in this book. What are your views, and what are the views of people like you in your kind of conservative position uh, concerning the Bush administration and the almost eight years of, that, of it that we've had? Conservatives are not particularly pleased with the Bush administration. Um, they think that he has, that, I mean, people don't think that Bush is really a conservative, that he really didn't think about these issues before he was president. He called himself a conservative, but 
that is a compassionate conservative, which meant that, well, I'm pretty conservative, but I don't want to be painted too far into that corner, and there are a lot of things I can do by using government to um, alleviate people's problems and the problems of the world. So he called himself a big government conservative, which is, I think, a total contradiction in terms. I mean, conservative means you 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 um, you want smaller government, you want government... Unless that, you're a neoconservative. Well, that's right, but that's, again, a, a misuse of the term. So what you have is people that are are using the term conservative because it's politi politically expedient to do so. George Bush certainly did that. Now, by the same token, we think he did some pretty good things. We like his tax cuts. We like the judges that he appointed for the most part, some other things. But um, we're, conservatives are not nuts about his foreign policy. They don't, they don't like the Iraq war very much, and they certainly don't like his spending habits. What's the view on the Iraq war, that it never should have happened? No, I think generally there's there's no one view, but I think many conservatives think that probably going in there was the right thing to do to get it over with quickly and to get out and to leave the problem um, to the Iraqis to solve. That would be the traditional conservative way of looking at a foreign incursion, looking at, at warfare, is that you use it when it's in the best interest of the United States. You do it um, quick as quickly as you can. You know how you're going to get out, and you get out as quickly as you can, and it's done with. We had a debate of sorts here last night uh, between um, Samantha Power, who until just a few days ago was uh, a leading foreign policy advisor to Barack Obama, as you know, and an old friend of mine who was, I gather, a friend of yours as well, Joe Morris, mm -hmm. the leading Republican, former assistant attorney general uh, during the Reagan administration. And um, the question, uh, the issues of foreign policy arose very quickly, and there were clear differences as to what our foreign policy approach should be. Just talk with all of the dictators and all of our enemies and try to placate them so as to win credits with our allies who will then back us in a new coalition of the willing or something. That seemed to be the line that Samantha Power was putting across, and Joe Morris was appropriately skeptical about that. Well, I guess the Samantha line, I like to say that that's, that would be comparable to having hugged Hitler more and he might have been nicer to the Jews. Right? And that came up. That came up. Chamberlain, at least I raised the question of Chamberlain and Hitler, just coming back waving the paper saying, Herr Hitler gives us his assurances of peace in our time. Uh, I'd like to get a little bit more uh, elaboration of what you take to be the conservative uh, program from here forward. And we'll, whoever, what you hope for, whoever actually wins the next election. Very good. Okay. And we will go in that direction after we pause for a full update on the evening's news from Paula Cooper. And we return to Alfred S. Regnery, author of the new book, Upstream, The Ascendance of American Conservatism. In essence, a, uh, a history of the rise of the new conservatism in this country, not neoconservatism, but the renewed conservatism. Um, and uh, full of uh, interesting portraits of some of the leading actors, some of the leading players as well. Uh, some of the people we've talked about, but many others of considerable interest. Uh, but let me come directly to the question I was pushing a moment ago. As you look at the uh, present national and international situation, what is, as you see it and as your conservative colleagues see it, uh, the, the proper position with regard to the outstanding issues? What are, for that matter, the outstanding questions to begin with? Well, domestically, I think they are largely, or at least partially, economic. Um, taxes, government spending, um, uh, maintaining a sound dollar, um, maintaining free trade, and keeping the basically keeping the capitalistic system working well, and having the United letting the United States thrive in terms of the rest of the world. Um, 
which means keeping corporate tax rates low um, so that we can compete, that sort of thing. Um, in foreign affairs, I think, as, as pretty much everybody is, conservatives are very concerned about the stature of the United States in the world, which has plummeted in this administration, and we, are, we, we don't like that at all. I think that whoever is the president is going to have a big job to try to return it to where it was um, before this administration and back in the, in the Reagan years, even the Clinton years, it was, it was much better. Um, I think that obviously the, the, the Iraq war needs to be wound down responsibly. Um, the idea of pulling the troops out quickly was that, and interestingly, um, as I recount in the book, um, it was one of George McGovern's platforms in 1972 when he ran um, for president and was one of the things that defeated him um, as people realized what the consequences of that would be. Um, those are a few of them. You know, we haven't talked about the social conservatives, which are really the fifth, um, the fifth strain, fifth branch of the conservative movement, and those are largely the evangelical Christians, but others as well. And they're mm -hmm. concerned, of course, about family issues, life issues, um, those kinds of things. And and those conservatives have their agenda as well. The two main issues that um, arouse them are one, abortion, and the other is gay marriage. To both at, of which they are opposed. At the present time, those are probably their primary issues. Yeah. That's right. But they're still they're still very concerned about prayer in the schools, for example, um, which has been an issue with them since oh the 60s. Um, other issues of that sort: education, um, pornography, um, all those those sorts of things that have to do with with family values. And, and left wing liberals or radicals write screeds, whether in the form of. Uh, uh, of op-ed pieces or whole books in which they argue that the fundamentalist right has taken over American conservatism and has taken over the Republican Party. Well, they're wrong on that. The, 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 I wouldn't call them fundamentalists. That's, that's, that, that's a, a... Or the evangelical the evangelicals. Right. Yeah. But, yeah, evangelical voters probably make up, um, what, 30, 40 percent of the Republican <laughs> Party, um, which is, I think, probably the largest voting bloc um, in at least in the Republican Party, but by the same token, these aren't people who are only concerned with those issues. I mean, there are, many of them are businessmen who are concerned about about economic issues, or they're concerned about foreign policy, and they may also be evangelical Christians, and so they're concerned about their issues as well. So there, there's a great deal of overlap, and they haven't taken over anything. I mean, there, are, I'm not sure how many evangelicals there are in Congress. There may be 30 or 40, something like that, out of what. Um, 200 and some odd members of Republican members of, of the House, um, and they're they're elected <coughs> in other places as well. There's supposed to be some left-wing evangelicals. I guess there well. are. That's right. We're told that by by those on the left, and they've trotted out some ministers who are essentially uh, liberal to left, but are at the same time evangelicals. Right, and evangelicals, in fact, are now beginning to take take positions on environmental issues, mm -hmm. on global warming, some of those things as well. So, now, I mean, none of, none of this is is neatly categorized in little boxes. I mean, everything overlaps a great deal. So far, we've essentially been talking about, um, talking solely about America and about uh, American politics or American political orientation. Uh, but we are part of the main, the main being the democratic nations of the world, the established ones and even some of the newly emergent democratic nations. Does the same dynamic essentially apply? Does the same dimensionality apply, right versus left, uh, liberal versus conservative? And has there been an ascendance of conservatism in our cousin countries, in Canada, in Australia, in Western Europe, and so on? Less so than here. Um, 
Europe tends to be more more liberal than the United States, and there's there certainly is a conservative movement in much of Europe. It's much smaller than it is here, um, and the the British Conservative Party would not be considered conservative if they were here. So they're much closer together, I think, for the most part. Although they certainly have a hardcore left wing in the rest of the world as well. But you think the British Conservative Party, the Tories, are not as uh, truly conservative as they even our our Republican Party? No, Margaret Thatcher was, and she surely was. Um, but there, since then, they haven't been nearly as conservative as she was. For the most part, they, um, I think, many in many cases, they're really not very different from the Labour Party. I'm not an expert on it, but but it's my impression that from what I know and from members of Parliament and so on who I've spoken with from England that that they are much closer, and that that um, there are certainly a few real free marketeers in Britain, but there, mm -hmm. but there are only a few of them. Well, how do you then account for this comparative distinctiveness of American conservatism as compared to uh, the lesser breeds of conservatism elsewhere in the world? Well, I think it, it is strictly, it is really an American phenomenon, and I think it dates back to the founding. I mean, when, uh -huh. when, when um, as I mentioned in the book, Russell Kirk said the American Constitution was the most successful conservative document in the history of the world. And it really was. I mean, the 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 Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, um, the Federalist Papers are very conservative documents, and they talk largely about um, the limits that need to be placed on government in order to protect individual liberty, um, let people live their lives the way they want to live, and that is a really a um, something that we got largely from the British philosophers and and. Um, so on, but it was manifested here, I guess, more than any place else. I think it reflected the American um, way of doing things, the people that came over here originally, and it became the American way of life and remained that way really until the early part of the 20th century. Who are the others who have elaborated the thought intellectually? And for that matter, what are the other organizations or the other movements that have helped, that have fueled the ascendance? Well, there, of course, there, there is a whole network of organizations. Um, the, the, what I discovered in writing the book, which I really hadn't realized, I guess, to the extent that I did after I wrote it, was how much of conservatism was reaction to things that were going on in the left. Um, the, the courts played a huge role in the leftward trend of the, in, in the United States after the 50s. And there was a whole body of, of the conservative movement that was really arose to in reaction to what mm -hmm. the courts were doing. Um, the same, I mean, largely what I guess every aspect of the conservative movement is reaction to to liberalism or to communism, of course, with the anti-communists. So as the conservatives, as they grew, they became very good at forming their own organizations, their own structures, their own networks, communication systems, in other words, to... Um, to talk to each other and to help each other do things, and, and of course, as as there there are now hund hundreds of conservative organizations of one sort or another. There's a whole network of, as I say, uh, communication systems with blogs and and newsletters and newspapers, magazines, websites, all those. And things. there are conservative think tanks. But I learned from your book, I wasn't fully surprised by this, but I didn't know the exact numbers, that the conservative think tanks all grouped together only have about as one-fifth as much of the funding as do the liberal well, the, mon the money question is very interesting, yeah. actually. Yeah, the, the left would say that the, the right is this vastly funded organization. It never has it's been. It's a vast right-wing conspiracy. It, it, but it's, it's had a fraction of the money. I point out in the book that 
in the 60s, the Ford Foundation, which is one of the big liberal foundations, was, was, was paying out $300 million a year, where the entire budget of the conservative movement might have been 7 or $8 million. The MacArthur Foundation, based here in Chicago, uh, pays out more than that every year. And uh, whatever the original bequest, the original intention of the bequest was, has been very much a left-wing liberal organization. Well, in fact, that's right. And I think that the, if the numbers are correct, um, the the five largest conservative foundations um, have less money in their total assets than the five largest liberal foundations give away every year. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so the, the proportion is is incredible. By the same token, very interestingly, um, even the left admits that the conservatives use their money much more efficiently than the left does, maybe just because they're better businessmen. Yeah. We are about to pause for some commercials, and before we do that, it is time to invite telephone calls and email. <clears throat> the lines are now open. The number, of course, as ever, 591-7200. Any question you want to raise, any thought you want to share, 591-7200-312, the area code, if you're calling long distance. We await your calls. They, the lines are available to you. However, if you hit the busy signal and don't get through immediately, the proper strategy would be to call again a bit later on, certainly after we say goodnight to some prior caller. Also, for those who are listening over the Internet at some greater distance, uh, the easy way for you to reach us is via email. And the email address, of course, as ever again, is extension720 as one word, extension720 at Tribune. T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com. Extension 720 at Tribune.com or 591-7200 onto your contributions. Right after these words. And we will go directly to your questions and comments to Alfred S. Regnery, our guest tonight and the author of a new book, Upstream, The Ascendance of American Conservatism, which I can vouch for as an utterly readable and really quite fascinating book, uh, whether you agree or disagree with the major tenets of American conservatism. Uh, five nine one seven two double zero. the number. Here is the first caller. Good evening. Hi. Uh, good evening. Uh, I'd like to ask your guest if uh, he thinks talk radio in the last 15 years has done American conservatism any good or not. It seems to me like the uh, discussions have been dumbed down. You have a lot of uh, uh, hosts patting each other on the back about how uh, great Americans they are and uh, people arguing over Donald Trump and uh, uh, just thin discussion, a lot of bombast. It's not like uh, William F. Buckley's firing line. Well, I think there are, what, between 12 and 1,500 talk show hosts, radio talk show hosts across the country. I've been on a, not that many, but a great many of them, and they differ vastly. I mean, there's some that are very intelligent and some that aren't. Um, just like everything else. I think, generally speaking, talk radio has done tremendous things for this country. I think it has educated people. It's been a source of information that didn't exist before. Um, it's, been, it's been a way for people like me to promote books, as a matter of fact, um, and, and to, to get the word out on things like that. It's, it's a, a relatively new phenomenon, relatively new anyway from the 80s. And yes, I think overall it's it's been a tremendous asset. What do you make of the move? Indeed, Mrs. Clinton for a while associated herself with it as a member of the Senate to possibly re-invoke the so-called fairness doctrine. Well, it's a way that the liberals have of shutting us up. And that's the only reason they want to do it. The fairness doctrine, which of course um, provided that um, any political um, discussion on the air had to be 
uh, you had to give equal time to the other side. That meant that you simply couldn't do it because. That uh, meant that if I had you here tonight, I who would I have here tomorrow? You'd have to have somebody else tomorrow that took the, the opposite yeah. view from from me, and um, in fact, that was a the, the doctrine was was removed by Ronald Reagan, um, and immediately AM radio just took off like a shot. Um, and it's of course it, it is conservative, and that's a, another interesting question. Where are the liberal talk radio shows? There are not many of them, and um, as the print media basically remain quote liberal, more liberal. But uh, one, one the best explanation I ever heard is that that radio needs to be entertaining, and conservatives are just more entertaining than liberals are, and that's the reason liberal radio doesn't work. Of course, you've had um, a number of attempts to develop liberal, left-oriented uh, talk radio, the so-called Air America group. Uh, was pushing that, and they went bankrupt, and they're still around, but... Uh, I think they've gone bankrupt a couple of times. Yeah. They've gotten vast sums of money from wealthy liberals, yeah. um, and they spent it all, and, and um, they're, I think they're just practically out of business. Well, they are, they've got a station here in town, and it's listenership in the Arbitron numbers, which come out four times a year, as you know, uh, is essentially zero. Hmm. <laughs> During this time period, that's what I look at particularly, they literally have a zero... Maybe it's a 0 0.1 a portion of the total audience. Interesting. Yeah. Whereas we have uh, the largest or the second largest portion mm -hmm. shared with a one rock and roll radio station. 591-7200, the number, and on to another caller. <coughs> Hello, you're on the air. Hello, uh, Dr. Rosenberg and Mr. Regnery. It's a pleasure to speak with you. Um, I, I grew up listening or uh, watching uh, Buckley on Firing Line on Channel 11 in Chicago, and he was always entertaining. And you know, when I was seven or eight, I was thinking, this, you know, if there is a, a God, this must be God. And he was always the most erudite spokesman, and in in many ways, I think, for me, was was the only one. And what affected me most was a few years ago, I started reading uh, Buckley's. Uh, uh, it, it seemed as though he was rejecting Bush and uh, a lot of people who call themselves modern conservatives, which I completely agree with. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, I, I, if I'm not incorrect, I, th I think Buckley was sort of, toward the end of his life, embracing more libertarianism and looking at that as, you know, the only way we're going to get through this. So oh, I don't, I don't think it was libertarianism. He... Um, okay. He did change his mind on the Iraq War um, about, okay. a, about a year ago, um, but he still maintained uh, very much the same positions he had on most things throughout his life. I interviewed him for this book over two days. Um, the transcript of the interview is, I think, nearly 60 pages long, and he was very generous with me, and I, um, I incorporate a good deal of those interviews into the book, and many of them are things I think that he had really never talked about before. So, um, May I ask one, one more question real quick, and then I'll, I'll get out. Um, what, who did he see as any rising stars or hope for the future of American conservatism? I don't know. I didn't ask him that question. He... Um, of course, he had a lot of people that he w was still writing for National Review that I think in, in terms of journalism he felt very well about. Um, in terms of politicians, um, I don't know. I remember I did ask him in terms of intellectuals, and the one person that he mentioned he thought was really a rising star was Professor Robert George at Princeton, um, who is certainly a rising star. I'm sure there were others. Okay, thank you so much. We thank you, sir, for the call, and we're going to... Uh, and that call sort of prompts me to uh, activate this. We've got also here a sound um, a bite 
with Buckley uh, interviewing or talking with Reagan on his firing line program. And I think just to evoke those two very significant figures, we'll take a minute or two to hear that. Well, Bill, my, my first question is, why haven't you already rushed across the room here to tell me that you've seen the light? <laughs> I'm afraid that if I came any closer to you, the force of my illumination would blind you. <laughs> What, what do we as a nation, we have run it at no profit, we have maintained the neutrality throughout the history of the canal, we have certainly vastly benefited Panama, what do we gain by making this change? Uh, well, what we gain by making uh, this change, to quote myself, is increased, is increased <laughs> security and increased self-esteem. Uh, let me ask you to give me the answer to a question which you cannot document, but which I permit you to consult only your insight. <laughs> would you guess that the Panamanian people would prefer or not prefer to exercise sovereignty over their own territory? Take as long as you want to answer that. <laughs> okay. I was just sitting here wishing that I had with me the transcript of the impassioned plea that was made to United States Senators at a meeting of the Civic Council a week or so ago in Panama. The Civic Council is made up of representatives of all the towns in the, in the canal zone. The speaker was a black, a Panamanian, not an American, second generation. His father, a West Indian, worked on the on the canal and building the canal. He has worked all his life on the canal. And his impassioned plea was, even though he was a Panamanian, don't, don't do this, don't ratify those treaties. That is fascinating. Now that's a debate I was not aware of. The two of them are debating whether to give the Panama Canal back to Panama. That's right. And Reagan was opposed to it and Buckley was for yeah. it. When was that? That was in 1980. No, 1976, 77, 78 maybe. Zach, Zach like. tells me it's 78. 78, actually. yeah. yeah. Right. So is he still governor of California at that time? No, he, he, he left the governor's office in 74. There we are, yeah. Right. Fascinating stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, we are just about due for another update on the news, and then we will go back to the phones and to the email. All the lines are taken. If you're trying to reach us, you're not getting through, but do certainly try again And when we say goodnight to somebody else. For email, extension720 at tribune.com, and to the newsroom and Paula Cooper. And before we go back to the phones, uh, it is time to tell you about the new edition of Milt's File, that being our regular program blog, miltsfile.com. And I read... Uh, just a few of the items. There are some 13 or 14, as there usually are. It begins this way, im Deutschen Anschau. That is in translation in the German view. Here's how the Clinton-Obama contest looks to Der Spiegel, commonly considered the German equivalent of Time magazine. Actually, it's better, and most of their good stuff is available in translation. Next item, what does Obama believe? Dot, dot, dot. About judges, the Constitution, and the nature of justice. By their votes and their books shall you know them. 
and this weekly and the weekly standard here examines the record in a way that explains and affirms his rating as the most liberal member of the Senate. That's an article from the current edition of the Weekly Standard. To be Paren Hussein an African American or not to be depends in considerable part upon what office you are seeking and what constituency you are playing to. So says Victor Davis Hanson in this sharply turned and dead on aperçu which appeared today at National Review. And here's the audio of two of Hanson's appearances on our radio program. Uh, wherever we can, we, if these people have appeared on our programs, we give you the audio archive so you can listen to them directly if you so choose. One more item. There are some 13, as I said, but I want to read this one to you particularly because it relates to a wonderful column by our good friend John Cass. On the humiliation of Silda Spitzer, our man John Cass says what needs to be said about the ex-governor's continuing uh, misuse and public abuse of his wife. And as usual, he says it with emotive clarity and force. If you want more of Cass, as who would not, here's the audio of one of his fairly recent appearances on Extension 720. We end, as always, with some music that we think you'll enjoy. And uh, this one reads, if I can quickly find it. Um, yes, here we go. Um, the music of Cesar Franck is given an exceptionally moving representation on this performance, on the performance available at this audio site. You click on audio site and that brings it to you. If you want to get directly to his one great symphony, go first to track number five. Uh, Miltsfile.com, always available. And that's the new edition just up within the hour. We go directly back to the phones for your questions and comments to Alfred Regnery, 591-7200, the number. You are next on the air. Good evening. Hi. Uh, good evening, gentlemen. Uh, I guess the question I'd like to put on the table is, how do you see or who is making the winning argument for conservatives right now uh, that's going to win over the majority of American voters? I mean, in my view, it seems like we're entering an era that I call the era of American limits. I mean, the Iraq War has demonstrated there is a limit to our military power. Uh, we seem to be entering an era of limited oil reserves. Energy prices, I think, are going to continue to rise. I don't see them $2 gasoline anytime soon. Uh, we know that uh, the looming Medicaid crisis with you know all these retiring seniors, uh, I think there is a limit to how many immigrants we can let into this country. I mean, when you look at the left, they seem to say we can have unlimited immigration, everybody gets free health care, everybody gets to go to college, I think Hillary Clinton wants to uh, renegotiate everybody's mortgage that's having a trouble paying their bills. Uh, and, you know, I'm a working-class guy, and a lot of Americans are very insecure right now. I mean, all the trends seem to be going the wrong way. People's the value in people's homes, their main asset, is declining right now. And who out there in the conservative movement is making the argument that's going to assuage these, or what's the right word, but it's going to comfort most Americans? Well, I'm not sure there's any one person. I think there are several that are very articulate. I think about a member of Congress named Mike Pence, for example, from Indiana, um, very fine man. I think of Tom Coburn, senator from Oklahoma, uh, Jim DeMint, senator from South Carolina. Um, there are probably 15 or 20 other people in the Congress. 
don't forget also that you've got some very good governors, uh, lieutenant governors, members of state legislatures across the country who articulate the conservative cause very well. It's it's always easy to, in a, particularly in a presidential year, to put everything into presidential politics, and that's a mistake because there's a great deal going on other than presidential politics, um, which I think in the long run probably will you'll, you'll notice and will have a great impact. Um, Again, no one person. Um, there are certainly people in the media, uh, people that are writing, speaking, but um, they're dispersed over different issues and across the country. Uh, you're not from Illinois, are you? <laughs> I grew up here. Oh, you did? Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with the state of the uh, Illinois Republican Party and the conservative movement here? Not particularly. Uh, it's a disaster. <laughs> well, then you've got some your work to do to get it back. What's the uh, what is disastrous about it, sir? What, the Illinois Republican Party? Yeah. Uh, the last Republican governor is in jail right now. That's true. Uh, let's see, what else? There's numerous scandals, too numerous to mention right now, but it's, it's, it's on its knees. But that's the Illinois way. The, their scandals uh, bedevil the Democratic Party, too, surely. Right. Illinois, I guess, is the one state that never had a Reagan revolution. Uh, but he is from Illinois. <laughs> you guys have a good night. Thank you, sir, for the call. And quickly to another, on 591-7200. Good evening. Good evening. Yeah. How are you doing? Fine, sir. Go ahead, please. Thank you. Um, I have uh, two quick questions, and then I'll, I'll let uh, you guys speak. I guess, number one, uh, I was taken aback by the funding of uh, liberal organizations versus conservative organizations. Uh, could you comment on the fact that it appears that conservatives tend to believe that anyone that doesn't believe what they do, say, in global warming, then would say that all funding spent on the research of global warming is liberal spending. And then number two, you know, reconcile for me uh, this, this thought that liberals are the spendy, uh, you know, the last caller just uh, referred to us as uh, people who just want to get government bigger. Uh, last time I checked, our budget was $2 trillion in 2003, and I believe it's going to be $3 trillion in 2009. And, and that came under a, a completely conservative government. Uh, you know, I, I look at Medicare, Medicare Part C, and I say, what the heck is that? But I'd be interested in the conservative feedback on that. Well, those were there was not a conservative government; it was a Republican government, um, and conservatives are very critical of that. We agree that it's, it's outrageous that that the Bush administration should be proposing a three trillion dollar budget. Um, Medicare Part B is 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 out of control. Um, the Bush administration, with the help of the Republican Congress, passed one thing after another that, had, that they had no business passing. Um, and the result is that the, the budget has gone up dramatically. The deficit has as well. Um, distinguish between Republicans and conservatives. Um, a, Republic, a party has the job of electing um, candidates, selecting people to office, and raising the money and that sort of thing. The conservative movement has the job of establishing what the principles are and then trying to hold people's feet to the fire when they are elected. Um, the, the Republican Party certainly does not, is not a conservative organization. I mean, the conservative party, the Republican Party really doesn't have any principles at all. Um, to the extent that it gets principles, it gets them largely from the conservative movement. Um, so the, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, there are a great many Republicans who have run as conservatives who really were not conservatives at all and who um, abuse the conservative uh, cause overwhelmingly, and and we think this pro have probably caused it a great deal of damage. Who represents that category? What people do you have? In, names, name some names. Well, uh, people. I mean, certainly, certainly George Bush was is one of the worst offenders. 
um, many members of Congress who um, call themselves big government conservatives, and in some cases they they may have even gotten elected as conservatives, but for whatever reason, um, they think once they get there that they need to spend the taxpayers' money in order to get reelected. As one wag said. Um, they get elected on the theory that Washington is a cesspool, and when they've been there for three or four years, they realize it's a hot tub. They want to stay. It's <laughs> a good line. Um, then you don't consider yourself a Republican. Are you a member of the Repu well, Republican I, Party? Yeah, no, I'm not really a member of the Republican Party. I will usually vote Republican. Yeah. And um, in election time, I'll put on my Republican hat and take off my conservative hat, perhaps, and vote for, for a John McCain or whoever it is, because I think... Mm. Um, the options are so terrible, but that doesn't mean that I'm always going to do whatever the Republican Party tells but me. But aren't some do. people in your category, of your cast of mind, tempted towards libertarianism at times? Oh, sure. And their libertarians are um, an, certainly another strain of conservatives. I mean, if we go back to the to Hayek people. The libertarians are really the mm -hmm. the, the direct descendants of the of the um, classical uh, liberals that were writing those tracts during the 1940s and 1950s. Um, and libertarians, in many cases, I think, go too far. They would eliminate virtually all the government. And practically speaking, of course, that's not going to happen. And they would opt for simple isolationism with regard to anything exactly. in foreign policy. Exactly. Um, a last round of commercials in pens, and then right back to the phones uh, on five nine one seven two double zero. And now to uh, quick now to the studio. Those commercials, and then back to you, and directly back to your calls to Alfred S. Regnery, author of Upstream. And here is the next. Hello, you're on the air. Thank you for having me on, sir. Uh, your, your program is most interesting. I have a comment and I have some questions. First of all, the comment with regard to the spending uh, issue, I don't know of any so-called conservative, or liberal for that matter, who is advocating, for example, an increase in taxes to cover the uh, spending we're doing in Iraq. During the uh, Korean War, we had an excess profits tax, which was designed to help uh, apply to that. And, and yet we have, as the speaker said, this huge increase in deficits. Also, I think there's, a, uh, I'm not clear on what uh, a liberal is and what a conservative is when it comes to various issues. I think better to understand. For example, what is the conservative position on the fact, on the fact that the government, that the president recently uh, vetoed the bill which would have prohibited the CIA from torture? What is the conservative position on Guantanamo and holding prisoners there without access to legal counsel and so forth? And what is the conservative position on things like wiretapping, which apparently the, the, at the behest of the government was done by the various telephone companies? How do the conservatives stand on, that, on those issues? Well, conservatives don't have positions on every issue. And, and on those issues, I think you'll find in the Congress that there's going to be division among conservatives. I'm not sure those are really conservative or liberal issues. By the same token, conservatives generally believe in the rule of law, they believe in the Constitution, they believe in civil liberties, um, and they take those things very seriously, but they also believe that, that the, the national security of the United States is paramount. So you have a balancing act that you have to do between those, and I think, as I say, that you will find among conservatives and liberals positions on both sides of those questions. Our listener is listening to the radio, which has the time delay in this. He may get a little bit uh, discombobulated. So we thank him very much for the call. Let me read you um, an email I've got in front of me. If memory serves me well, the right wing after World War II was strongly in favor of birth control to solve the problems of the world, as General MacArthur guided post-war Japan. When and how did the right do a 180-degree turn 
on the subject. Did they, in fact? You know, I don't know the answer to that question. I've never heard that before. That, and I, I, the, 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 the right wing is a term that really doesn't mean very much because, again, you're going to have differences of opinion on, on things like that. Um, and even among conservatives now, you're certainly going to have differences of opinion on abortion, on, um, on all those life issues, on birth control, and so on. I'm not sure those are really defined as conservative or liberal issues, in fact. Uh, we've got some lines available again. If you've been trying to reach us, make another quick try, and somebody will get through. 591-7200, the number. Another email. Do you think that the media's constant barrage of, quote, we're in recession, turns people from conservatism to the type of socialism Obama is proposing? I don't know that he's overtly proposed socialism, but he's, But what do you make of that question? Well, I... the the. the, the the media does what sells papers, I guess, and what gets your attention. Um, I think that, that the discussion of recession is, is varied from one side to the other. Um, does it? I, generally, I think also that, that I, I don't believe that, that people are going to jump to advocate socialism. I don't think there are actually many people in the United States that advocate socialism for anything, much less ending the recession. Certainly conservatives believe the, the way to end recession is to cut taxes, cut corporate taxes, to stimulate employment, to stimulate um, the economy, and that'll bring us back. Um, I think virtually any conservative will say, in fact, that, that more government, more socialism is just going to make it worse. Who are some of the uh, leading conservative thinkers or ideologues these days that you that you think are making a significant contribution more than simply, in essence, repeating a, an established faith? Oh, there are lots of them. Um, at the American Spectator, we have all kinds of people that write for us. Um, we have a piece in the current issue by Paul Johnson, a British uh, historian. He's certainly somebody who continues, I think, to, to be a, a great conservative philosopher. Um, Another piece by an older person that's coming is by Robert Bork, who, in in terms of legal theory, is probably one of the greatest mm -hmm. minds and um, alive today. Uh, there are on every issue. I think you've got you've got people that you mentioned Roger Kimball earlier, somebody mm -hmm. that in terms of culture, um, doing wonderful things. Robert George at Princeton is another one certainly who is um, on a number of different issues, including legal issues, including um, social issues. Is is outstanding. It gives um, me great delight that everyone you've mentioned so far has been a guest on this program. <laughs> you mentioned Victor Davis Hanson. He had yeah. another one on foreign policy yeah. who has written some very good things. So I think it's very varied, and I think there are there's still a, a great many younger people that are coming along as well. Yours is a fine journal, The American Spectator, and I've always enjoyed it from its early days when it was still down there in Bloomington. Uh, what other journals stand out for you? What do you make of the Weekly Standard, in fact? Well, the Weekly Standard is, is more, is more uh, current news than, than we do. Um, it has some good things in it. It tends to be more neoconservative. But, oh, it surely is. Um, its editor is William Crystal. It is, and, and, but, it, but certainly not all the writers are neoconservatives. Um, National Review, I don't think, has the luster that it did when Bill Buckley was oh, there. Yes. Uh -huh. um, Human Events is another weekly that um, is more current news and so on. Um, but then there are things like the New Criterion, which um, Roger Kimball um, edits, which is a, a journal on culture. Um, ISI, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, has a number of, of um, journals that are, are very fine intellectual, um, scholarly uh, pieces. Um, 
of course, the the websites are the primary. Uh, these I probably the most widely read these days, and there are hundreds of those websites and blogs. And blogs, right? Yeah, right. yeah. And well, of course, one doesn't even know what, or doesn't know half of them, or or nine tenths of them. N- new ones so every many, day, I guess. And they pop up every day, but ours is always available. Miltsfile.com, as I said just a few minutes ago, and let's go back to the phones. Five nine one, seventy two hundred. You are on the air. Good evening. Uh, good evening. Who? Hello? Yes, sir. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, the clip you had on before with uh, Ronald Reagan and uh, Mr. Buckley on was very interesting. I always found Mr. Buckley very erudite and, and, and truthful what he was saying. The governor, though, at that time, next governor Reagan, uh, always spoke anecdotally, it seemed. He'd be making up stories. Not making up stories, but uh, not always stretching the truth, and I wondered about uh, how you feel about that for the conservative movement. Uh, he seemed to be uh, like to stretch the truth a little bit when, when that really being factual about Actually, you mentioned background. Gary Wills earlier tonight, and in his book on Reagan, he says that about Reagan. Not so much that he was overtly lying, but that he confabulated and fantasized and got confused as to what was um, uh, was his own scenario and what was really literally true. I think he, he true. probably did that some. I mean, he would tell those stories about the welfare queens and things like yeah. that. And many times they were exaggerated. He would use them as examples and so on. But, you know, I, I, I talk about Ronald Reagan in my book extensively. I have a whole chapter on of him. Course. And then I, he comes up um, many times um, throughout the book. And he, it is amazing how consistent he was from the time he was a young mm. man, um, the General Electric speeches, of which there are hundreds, the, the Goldwater speech, um, his campaign in 1976, 1980, even when he was president, um, he, he basically had the same position on things that that didn't really change. Certainly, probably with the little things that, that he said, he, he did make some mistakes or exaggerated things, but um, certainly it was nothing, nothing was intentional. And as an actor, as somebody who had done speeches in Hollywood, he learned how to use those kind of examples to make his point. And they were, of course, as we know, very, very effective. I'm going to offer one more sound clip, if we can locate it. Uh, The mystery voice. You'll know this one instantly. I wonder how many of our listeners will recognize it instantly. It's well-meaning sponsors. There are always, in these cases, two groups of sponsors. There are the well-meaning sponsors, and there are the special interests who are using the well-meaning sponsors as front men. You almost always, when you have bad programs, have an unholy coalition of the do-gooders on the one hand and the special interests on the other. The minimum wage law is as clear a case as you could want. The special interests are, of course, the trade unions, the monopolistic craft trade unions in particular. The do-gooders believe that by passing a law saying that nobody shall get less than $2 an hour or $2.50 an hour or whatever the minimum wage is, you are helping poor people who need the money. You are doing nothing of the kind. What you are doing is to assure that people whose skills are not sufficient to justify that kind of a wage will be unemployed. It is no accident that the teenage unemployment rate, the unemployment rate among teenagers in this country, is over twice as high as the overall unemployment rate. It's no accident that that was not always the case. Until the 1950s, when the minimum wage law, uh, wage rate was raised very drastically, very quickly. Milton Friedman. Of course. Wonderful economist, died about, what, a year or so ago. Yeah. I interviewed him for my book as well at length in his apartment in San Francisco. And um, he, he, was, he, was, he never called himself a conservative. He was a libertarian. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and in fact, he believed in legalization of marijuana and other things. I mean, he, he really thought that people should be allowed to do yeah. whatever they want. I remember asking him about that. And he said, if the, why should the government be able to control what you put in your mouth any more than what you put in your mind? He's a fabulous man, yeah. delightful fellow. Uh, I came to the University of Chicago, and within a few months, I was asked to, or I was appointed to some particular committee and discovered that he was one of the members. Hmm. And another was Hannah Arendt, an incredible group. Uh, and we had... Um, lunches every two or three weeks while doing the work of the and committee. And of course, he got a Nobel Nobel Prize in economics. Um, he mm -hmm. was made a huge contribution. Those books that he did, the you remember the series, um, oh, Free, yes. Free to Choose, that sure. he did on on um, on public television. Yeah, he was a marvelous teacher. And, and he was at it until the very end, and I think he was about 93 or 94. And he was still skiing till a couple of years before yeah. he died, too. Uh, we are just about out of time. Uh, the book by Alfred S. Regnery that we've been drawing from, but there's much more to it than we've been able to cover in this brief time, is titled Upstream, The Ascendance of American Conservatism. And again, the publishers are... Threshold Editions. Threshold Editions. Simon & Schuster. Of Simon & Schuster. And I thank you so much for joining us tonight. Well, thank you. It was a delightful evening to be with you. It's been a great pleasure to meet you. And uh, I don't have to renew my subscription to American Specular. I think I get it for free. I shouldn't confess well, we'll, that. We'll but... send it to you if you don't. <laughs> All right. <laughs>